moving from Houston to Loma Linda, California. Two adults and two children and one guinea pig and a long dry road between Houston and Loma Linda if you've not driven that road. Let's just get there as quick as we can, but it's not real interesting, so we promised the kids we'll sling, swing through the four corner states so they could see, say they saw something on the drive, and we'll go through Las Vegas so we could say we were there. We found a hotel, not a lot of money, got a guinea pig, but here's a hotel with a breakfast and guinea pigs are okay, so we stayed for the night, walked around Vegas, and got home as quick as we could. And this is the story of one family moving from Houston to Loma Linda. This is the story of one family moving from Houston to Loma Linda. Mom and Dad promised they would take us someplace interesting on the way home, and we ended up on this piece of ground where supposedly four states touch each other. Does anybody care? And they told us we could go to Las Vegas. We'd always heard about Las Vegas, but we'd never been. The best thing, we're going to go to Vegas. So when your friends ask you, where did you stay? You can say the MGM Grand, or we stayed at Paris, Paris, or we stayed... But our parents took us to the La Quinta Inn. Who stays at the La Quinta Inn? We can't even tell our friends now. We were in Vegas, and we, people saw us walking down the street, and they said, there goes that family from the La Quinta Inn. Look at them. They think they can walk around with the rest of us. What a horrible trip moving from Houston back to Loma Linda. This is the story of that trip. Now these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made them. When the Lord God made the earth and the heaven, when nothing was on the face of the earth, nothing had appeared, no plant had appeared on the earth, no brush from the field had sprung up yet, because the Lord God had not sent rain yet on the earth, and the watered and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the very breath of life. From the dust, the ground, the Lord God made this living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, the Lord God placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four rivers. Four, the first one, name was Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land, by the way, is good. The aromatic resin, and there's onyx there also. The name of the second river is the, Gi river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for him, care for it. And then the Lord God said, to the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil. If you eat of that tree, surely you will die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. What would their name be? And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the, all the beasts of the field. But the man, Adam, 
found no suitable helper. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took a rib from the man's side, and he closed up that place with the flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib and that he had taken out of the man, and he brought the woman to the man. The man said, Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God created them. Imagine, would you, that we have only Genesis 2, only this account of creation now. Imagine no Genesis 1, which we have studied for the last three weeks. No, 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 no being from up above in the universe creating the cosmos. No concern that the foundation, the firmament, be separated above and below. Imagine we don't have the story of the ocean and the land and the sky and the greater light and the lesser light and the humans created simultaneously simultaneously in the image of the creator and the Sabbath rest and God calling it all good. Imagine we have none of that and we have only what we read here in Genesis 2 this morning. This would be our entire knowledge of creation from Genesis 2. What could we say about our story of beginnings? From Genesis 2, from that very first verse in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We learn that the story is being told for the first time, really, in chapter 2. It's a new way of telling the story. Gone is all that exalted poetic language we've been talking about for three weeks. This is going to be a really, a, a very basic telling of the facts. But it begins with this introduction, these are the generations. And we'll read that introduction. If we, if we followed Genesis all the way through, we'd read it ten more times. Every time a new story wants to be told in Genesis, that same introduction will come up. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Terah. These are the generations of Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and all the way to the end of the chapter till we get to those last 15 chapters and these are the generations of Jacob. So we know we're on to a new story. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were made. The Lord God, now God has a new name in Genesis 1. It was God Elohim, and now it's the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. That's the Yahweh, the Israelites' God, but it's still the Elohim from Genesis 1, is it? The Lord God now for Genesis 2 and 3. These two chapters and then only one verse in Exodus. And then that composite name for God disappears. It seems to be a new name for a creator. This creator doesn't really have the eyesight from the universe perspective from above. This one is below. This one's a gardener, plants an elaborate park. This creator, with the creator's hands, picks up the dust and forms things like the man. With the same dust, forms the animals. With breath of life and with the dust. This creator, well, he uses the waters, the chaos of waters for good. And, and the waters don't represent anything chaotic, actually, in this story, like in Genesis 1. These waters are for vegetation, bringing forth vegetation from the ground in Genesis 2. All of these creatures are given to the man, and, and the man is told to name them all. The man and the woman are given a work to do, a task in this garden. It's also true that they have almost every freedom. They can wander to and fro. They can move about the garden. They can organize their work any way they would like. Almost total freedom in Genesis 2. 
So from the rib of this man, the Lord God creates one that is equal to the man. The man now doesn't have to be in solitude, can, be, can have a helpmate. And the story ends in actually a very lovely way with two humans attached one to the other in fulfillment. If we only had Genesis 2, that version of the story, what would we know? For in that version that I just recited again, there is no Sabbath rest. Did you notice that? There's not creation out of nothing, as in Genesis 1. There's no chaos. There's no orderly forming of things, as God did in Genesis 1. The focus now seems to be on the soil and the earth and the humans. The humans, not, not this exalted imprint in the divine image, but they're made out of the very same dirt the humans are made out of now. There's not a command to produce children to go forth and multiply. Some of you might rather like this version of the story. If you don't want to have children, you don't have to in Genesis 2. Instructions to work, a love story. That's, by the way, what Pastor Ken will pick up next week, the story between Adam and Eve. So are these two stories, are one, are they two accounts of the same story? Are we reading the same thing, or are we reading two very different things? Ought we intertwine these two stories somehow, make sense of them together, as many, many people have done? Some scholars sit very carefully and strategically over these verses in original language, and they realize when you put the stories side by side, it really couldn't have happened this way because, well, well, over here there's plants and then there's humans, but over here there seem to be, it's the other way around. There's humans and then there's plants. So maybe we should crisscross these verses and verse 3b and 6b really are the context for this is how complicated it gets when people try to understand how should we understand Genesis 2 in relationship to Genesis 1. The, the not good, what we just read, it's not good for the man to be alone. That must be before the very good in the first creation story in Genesis 1, right? Maybe it's the first five days of creation have happened by the time we get to Genesis 2. And what we read in Genesis 2 is very specific activity from day 6. Well, that might work, but now we have to account for this, liter- this dryness on the land when the Lord God begins his work. It's a season of dryness, and what does that mean? And does that mean it was longer than six days? Were, were there, was there a long time that intervened and seasons and cycles of dryness? And now what do we do with six 24-hour days? And the Sabbath, how could we have a creation story without the Sabbath? And did you ever think any of these questions before? Did you ever wonder if we were in a classroom now on the campus at the university, it's a lovely thing, they'll put a little electronic in your device and at this point the teacher can just step forward and say, let's just take a vote. And all the students can register their vote. It's a wonderful way of teaching. I, I, we, should, we need to install that here in the church because we could just pause and everybody could register their opinion and you could, could say, it doesn't bother me, never thought about it before, troubles me greatly. No way you can make these work together. Let me just see your hand if you've ever thought about this before. Two, two creation stories sitting side by side. How do they make sense together? Has anybody thought about this? I interestingly had a man from first service who told me I could mention this. Adventist all of his life. Professional, empty nester who said to me after first service, this is the first time in my whole life I saw two stories in Genesis. And I am raised in the church. 
Is it one story or two? And these are the kinds of things that concerned me as one of your pastors. Not only that we be in the Word and that that the Bible breathe life into us and that the Bible form us spiritually and grow us, but that we also be intelligent about our Bibles, that we know what's in there and what is not that we are familiar with these stories. I was at a meeting in Riverside this week at our, general, at our, um, our uh, conference office, and they were passing a story around the office that someone from Riverside had been back at Andrews at the seminary to visit the students. Was there on other business, but it's the custom, the tradition here in Southeastern. And if anybody's passing through the seminary campus, they always stop, find the students from our conference, try and take them out to a meal, show them a little love, and you know, tell them it won't be dry and barren for long. Soon they'll be home to California. So the worker from the conference office came back and reported to the administrative team, I was just at Berrien Springs, and I, I saw our students. And, well, this one and this one and that one, and reported all the students he had taken out to supper. The administrative team listened and nodded their head and said, that's very lovely, but none of those are our students. (laughs) Not a one. You treated somebody's students to a meal. And I worry about the Bible sometimes, that we don't recognize our own stories inside of our sacred book. I invite you to take that Bible out of the rack right in front of you and open pages 1 and 2, Hinged together by just a little bit of glue this morning, are they one story or two? It is one of the critiques from outside of Christian community because because there appear to be two stories sitting side by side that cannot both possibly be literally true that neither one of them are true, that it undermines the entire biblical story. In fact, that's one of the critiques, and, and Dr. Clausen will tell you he hears that in the scientific community because the Bible appears to uh, conflict with itself. We probably shouldn't trust any of it. They can't both be physically, literally, chronologically true. So we ought to care about this, these two creation stories. We ought to care what it means when other people read this creation passage. We ought to care how it supports or undermines scientific conversation. We ought to care how we interpret it in community. It's one of the things I say often from from the pulpit. One of, I believe, the most pressing and regular challenges in our community that will never go away until we're in heaven is how we read our Bibles together and what we do with these interpretations. If we want to read those two accounts in a precise, literal, word-for-word fashion, they are incomprehensible. And it's startling to me that you only have to open the first two pages of the Bible, hinged together by a little bit of glue, to have a wonderful example of the challenge Scripture can provide. Is it the same story? I think yes and maybe no at the same time. When we were kids growing up, you have to be old enough. At summer camp, they used to sing these songs, and they'd sing a verse, and there would be this pause, and everyone would shout out from around the campfire, same song, second verse. And then you take a big breath, and you'd launch into the next verse, and then everyone would pause, same song, third verse, these obnoxious little campfire songs. Same song, perhaps, second verse we have in Genesis 2. Same story we find ourselves in, now a new storyteller. It's also pretty clear to me that whoever compiled the Bible is not troubled that there appear to be two stories sitting side by side, do you think? 
or they wouldn't have done that. It's very typical in ancient Israel to cluster stories like this. And you and I even do this sometimes now. If you're sitting around on a Saturday night playing games and someone tells a lost key story, pretty soon everybody's got a lost key story, right? If you're sitting around talking about the day the dog got lost, everybody's got a story about their pet. A clustering of stories. That's common in ancient Israel. It doesn't bother them to have these two stories sitting side by side, I believe. And I take this somewhat as evidence, just like the four Gospels, that you can have the same story from another perspective, from another source, in another style. That Genesis 1 and 2 then need to be read together in a complementary fashion. One ought to inform the other. Jesus did this. In the Gospels, he's asked the question, is it all right for a man to divorce a woman for any reason? In both Matthew and Mark, this question is recorded. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked that question, and then he replies in verse 4, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Which creation story is that from? Genesis 1. He created them male and female in his image, in his likeness. Jesus continues, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what creation story is he citing? Genesis 2. Seems to me that Jesus does that. He makes sense of both creation accounts together. One way of doing this, and not the only way of doing this, is to read Genesis 2 as a close-up perspective of what's happening on earth that day the humans are formed. That Genesis 1 is a more removed, universal, cosmic reflection in this amazingly worshipful, exalted language. And Genesis 2 is a little more microscopic, up close and personal with the humans on the earth in the soil. What was happening on the earth when the humans were created? Genesis 2, verse 7, verse 7 of that chapter is the first creative act that happens when the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And God goes on to do a few more creative acts. He creates the garden. He transplants the man to the garden. He begins to create all these animals. Adam names them and and they find no, no one suited for Adam, and so the rib is taken from Adam's side, and the woman is made, and the couple is given work, and a, quite an extravagant love story begins in the garden. This is the creative story from Genesis chapter 2. I will just add three more ideas about creation we can learn from Genesis 2. If you've been here at all the last two or three weeks, from Genesis 1 I said we learn that creation bears the imprint of the Creator, that creation is totally at the initiative of the Creator, that creation enjoys the presence of the Creator in Genesis 1. Now from Genesis 2, we also see a few more truths. That, that creation brings choice to humans. From the very beginning, they can choose to do really whatever they want. Walk whichever direction they want in the garden. They can... Cook first, weed second, weed first, cook second. It's totally up to them how they choose to organize their day. They can laugh or sleep. Can you imagine? You take your nap whenever you wanted. You can go to your work wherever you wanted. You can choose from almost any fruit tree in the garden. You could have plums or peaches or papayas or mangoes. And as I told Narati over here, first service, no kimchi. No, was it kimchi I was quitting? No durian. No durian. That's only about 600 years old, I learned would not be in the Garden of Eden. 
You feel better? Don't have to eat durian for supper. It's not an option. You can order your day however you want. There's really only one pro- prohibition. Just stay away from this one tree. Creation has choices in the Garden of Eden. Human freedom seems to be very important to the Creator. We also see that while humanity is unique, we know from that first story this perspective of from above, this exalted position. Humanity comes at the end of the creation story with the imprint of the Creator. But here we see humanity is scooped up out of the same soil the animals are made out of and formed with the hands of God and with a little divine breath. That's a human. And it, and it helps us remember we ought to be careful about our exalted status in the world because we really are very connected to everything else that's been created. Isaac, Pastor Isaac, will take this up two weeks from Sabbath. I'm not sure Adventist Christianity has taken that part seriously. We are really connected to everything else created in the world. I also see in Genesis 2 that there is a pattern and a cycle now that's finally established. The Sabbath is in Genesis 1, but we see fully relationship and work come into place, and that this is what the humans do now. They relate to everything and everyone in the created garden and to the creator, and they have a work that's holy and special. And, and if, you create that, if you combine that with Genesis 1, they have relationships and they work and they worship or rest. There is a cycle and a pattern that these humans move through. And we see really now that the humans have a very different life than any other creation story you can read. And this remains my thesis statement through the whole sermon series from the first three to today to to on to the rest. What the creation stories keep testifying to again and again and again is this creator is different than any other creator ever known. This creator creates humans and puts them in relationships and gives them a work to do and stays with them, and rests with them. This creator, when he creates humans, it's not like the Babylonian creation story. There, when the humans are created out of soil and dirt, they're also created with blood from the demons, from the bad gods. That's a human. Or an Egyptian creation story, when the humans are created, they're created to take the place of the lesser gods who have been digging ditches all their lives. Isn't that? I don't know if that's where the phrase comes from. You know, you'll be out digging ditches. But that's what the humans do in that creation story. They dig ditches. But this Yahweh Elohim, God, when this one creates, what the humans end up with is entirely different. Relationship, work, worship. And they pair all this up with the Creator. You know, when I close my Bible and I try and ask that question again of Genesis 1 and 2, What should we take from it then? I remember very quickly that it has to make sense in the real world where we live. Many of the questions that I've asked of the text this morning and the last couple of weeks, no one in the world is even thinking about. Isn't that true? Whatever the story means, it has to make sense in the world in which we live. That's why so many people say of Genesis 1 and 2, we miss the forest for the trees. 
We've misunderstood what we were supposed to do with the story. So we work with the genealogies and we carefully count backwards the generations, assuming they're all intact, assuming they're fully accurate. And we count back and we come up with a chronology. Or we go to the Arabian Peninsula hoping to find the actual Garden of Eden. Or we cling tightly to those six literal days of creation to preserve the Sabbath. And, and in the end, what we find is we've clung on and we worship a creation story, but not a creator. Whatever Genesis 1 and 2 teach us, it has to make sense in the real world in which we live. Does it make any sense to cling on to a story you would worship in the real world? It is the creator in the story. In the world you and I live in this week, in our city, in our country, in our world, the biggest story in, in the news this week has been the financial crisis the failed talks in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital, of bailing us out of this problem, a market that's so unstable that banks can't even get loans. In our country this week, people are still without water and food and in, in threat of disease because of Hurricane Ike that's gone through the south and up through the central part of our states. In this country, in this world this week, Muslim faith is coming to the end almost of a, a month-long celebration of Ramadan and a, a new commitment in their life of faith this next year. In our world this week, more war and more war and more war. In Afghanistan and Iran and Russia and India and Pakistan, Africa. In our world this week, in China, infants sick from melamine contamination. The estimates are 40, 50, 60,000 infants sick because of a toxin that got into milk. And dozens of countries now banned from using that product coming out of China. That's just our world this week, a little tiny slice of what's going on. Genesis 1 and 2, our creation story needs to make sense in this world where we live. In our world this week, I met a man on Hospitality Lane, a woman first, and then the man. I was coming out of a restaurant, and I was tired, and I was ready to go home, and the woman stopped me and said, excuse me, we need some help, and the story began. Uh, we've just been put out of this house. We have no place to sleep tonight. It's me, my husband, my daughter. I, I swear to you, we just need some help for tonight. If you'd be so kind as to help us, and I listened to the details, and, and I'm learning from Marty Albertson how to do this. Marty's so good at this. But I was a little short on sleep and a little cranky, and I said to the lady, are you telling me the truth? She looked at me, yeah, yeah it's the truth. And I, and I said, and I rarely say this, I promise you, but I said to her, because I'm a pastor, I really hope you're telling me the truth, because I can't just leave you here. I, you know, I work for God, and are you telling me the truth? <laughs> I really wanted to go home. I swear to you, I rarely say that to strangers. I just thought I'd get the truth out of her, right? She says, uh, 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 oh, well, pastor. No, here's, the, okay, I swear to you, here's the God-honest truth. And so then I heard the true version of the story. Been put out, got into some trouble, stuff over in San Bernardino, in the temporary homes closed, Salvation Army closed, can't get a room for the night. I swear, you go talk to my husband, he'll show you his, you know, we, we can get on the bus and get out to this motel in San Bernardino. I promise you, this is the real story. We go meet the husband, he shows me his bus pass. I'm feeling badly, I really am, and I'm also very tired and not in the best of behavior. Uh, 
He shows me his bus pass. I mean, what would that be like that you have to show your bus pass to people to get some help? Serious. <laughs> and the, I meet the daughter, and he says, you know, I promise you, we're just out here. This, here's the name of the motel out in San Bernardino, horrible part of town. He was right. I said, you know, if I call the hotel motel out there, am I going to hear the same story? Because I just want to know the story now. This is what happens. I call these places, and I'll hear your real story. So if this isn't the real story, could you just tell me now? Uh, okay, here's the real story. <laughs> so I heard the real story. Called the hotel. You know this couple? Is this the story? Okay, I'm on my way out. So I go back to the family there. And I say to them, I'm going to go to the bank and get some money. And, uh, oh, thank you, thank you. I said, no, don't thank me. It's my church and me. We'll split it. Can't leave you on the street if you have no place to sleep. Thank you so much, they said. I said, you know, I just want to pray over you God's richest blessing for tonight. And this man said back to me, oh, well, that's a fact. God does bless that's a fact. We, we know God blesses. We're, we're not going to be down for long. We're only going to be down a little while because God blesses. And I don't know now if he's just using my language or I don't even care. Because see, now Genesis 1 and 2 makes sense in the real world. The Creator blesses. And if you ever forget, just go back and read the story again. The Creator blesses before there's any problem in the world, before sin has crashed in on us. The Creator is, cannot restrain the blessings. So how much more does the Creator bless when the world looks like it looks today? If we took nothing else from Genesis 1 and 2, my, what a foundational truth. Yahweh Elohim, the one God above them all, who puts them all out of business, has only one interest, and that is to bless us all. These are the stories of the heavens and the earth when the Lord God made them. Amen. So to that powerful, untamable, amazing God, be all glory and honor and power and might. That is the same God who blesses and blesses and blesses. Be sure you are dismissed today in the story of the generations of this heaven and earth at the command of such an amazing God. Go in that good experience. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.